0: My guests will share ideas which might delight you, much like the bent pencil once did delight me. Today's guest will introduce us to Lake Michigan. Her introduction is based on a 1,000-mile walk around the lake. Yes, 1,000 miles. I look forward to my discussion with Lorreen Newhouse. When you strapped your shoelaces together in Chicago and started your adventure. What was that date?
1: Uh, That was March, I want to say 16, 2009.
0: And of course when you got done tying the shoes and you stood up and you walked out the door, you knew you were on a journey that was going to change your life forever and have no end, right?
1: (laughs) No, no. You know, It was a 1,000-mile hike ahead of me, and I had never done a 1,000-mile hike, and it sounded, well, quite honestly, it sounded a little insane. (laughs) So I, I really didn't know if I could accomplish it. And as you know, I began that first adventure in Chicago, and then my first segment was to hike around the bottom of the lake. And that is incredibly industrialized. I wasn't even sure if it was possible to hike through that industrialized corridor so no i I didn't see it stretching ahead of me you know for a decade like it has um it I, i wasn't even sure i could complete the first segment
0: when you finished the lake at that point you were tempted to continue with another of the lakes or with all of the lakes is that right
1: yeah as i got toward the end of the first hike Uh, I had been calling that first hike, the hike around Lake Michigan, I started calling it the adventure of a lifetime. But as it got closer and closer to the end, I thought this can't end here. I didn't want the adventure to end. So as I was making you know doing the final miles of that first hike around lake michigan was already starting to think about another thousand mile hike really gotten to know lake michigan on my first hike by hiking all the way around it and for the second hike i thought why not get to know all five great lakes by hiking portions of their shoreline that allowed me in the second book to talk about the individual personalities of each great lake uh, how the geology differs how the people along the different edges relate to the other Great Lakes, and also how the Great Lakes are connected and how they move water to the North Atlantic. So I, I wanted to get a real sense of all five Great Lakes and and how they relate to each other and how they relate to the people living along their edges.
0: I Thoroughly enjoyed the second book, and I think for the reasons you just mentioned, that the care of the Great Lakes I was uh, interviewing an individual rancher yesterday and that individual's ranch is probably about a half a mile from a tributary that flows into Lake Michigan from the Wisconsin side and he's got a, he has a good sized livestock operation and he's got such a commitment to using as few chemicals as possible and one of one of the examples that impressed me is because his House is so close to the barn area, he's got that perpetual problem of flies. And they just don't use chemicals, they just use the old fashioned sticky paper.
1: Well, and people need to realize that 40 million people get their drinking water from the Great Lakes. So it's not just, you know, let's keep the lakes pretty to look at, it's <laughs> let's make sure that the health of people uh, is not compromised by what we're doing to this source of drinking water for the, for the region.
0: I think I read somewhere um, that the Great Lakes hold 84% of the fresh water on the continent. Is, is that about what I remembered correctly?
1: That's correct. The fresh surface water, yeah. So 84% is in the Great Lakes.
0: Water is flowing as you just mentioned out to the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Correct, yeah. The lakes are all above sea level. Uh, Lake Superior is 600 feet above sea level and the lakes step down. So it's actually, it's gravity fed. They're flowing to the North Atlantic because of gravity. Superior is about 30 feet higher than Michigan and Lake Huron. So Superior flows into those lakes and then Michigan and Huron drain into Lake Erie. Lake Erie is slightly lower than, than Lake Huron. But then there's a big drop between Lakes Erie and Ontario because uh, you can actually visualize it at Niagara Falls. That's where that water takes, takes that huge plunge uh, on its way to Lake Ontario.
0: In the recent years, elevation of Lake Michigan and probably the other lakes have reached historic highs. If, if Michigan is up by over two feet above its historic high,
1: No, no, it's not over two feet. It's, it just, it just barely broke its historic high, but we've been keeping track of Lake Michigan for over a hundred years. And within that hundred years, the historic low is about seven feet below what it is right now. So, you know, with, within that hundred years, it's been going up and down within a range of seven feet. And right now it's, it's set a new high within that, that range. They've broken their historic highs uh, this year, yeah, and there's you've probably seen a lot of stories in the news about erosion of shorelines and dunes that are being threatened and beaches that are, you know, gone or almost gone because the lake is so high, yeah.
0: If Lake Michigan is uh, elevated quite a bit, does that change the flow rate from Superior to Michigan, or does Michigan also raising about the same
1: the lakes can raise independent of each other depending on like a heavy rainfall around the lake ontario basin can raise lake ontario a foot and it won't affect the, the lakes upstream um, so i mean if, if lake superior goes very high it can affect the lower lakes because the water is flowing into the lower lakes we do have a couple points where we can control the flow, like between Lake Superior and Lake Huron, uh, there are gates that they can, they can modulate it a little bit. Um, and along uh, the St. Clair River, there's a little bit of control, but people think we can throw switches and just control this water. And, and there's, there's just a little bit of control we have in the system. And if we opened all the floodgates that we do have controls of, then downstream, you know, Montreal might be flooded, uh, you know, irreparably. So, even though we do have a little bit of control, we it, it can cause havoc if we if we open up the floodgates, as it were. I quite literally, open the floodgates. I guess it's not a metaphor here. <laughs>
0: well, you've naturally become um, so well informed yeah. about all these things, and i once again I'm thinking about that date. In March in Chicago, 2009, when you uh, leave the hotel and decide this is the day the journey starts, I know that you did some research before you started that journey, and I'm assuming that your learning curve during that 1,000 miles was extremely steep on a whole whole variety of things.
1: Yeah, I learned an awful lot on that first hike. About halfway through it, I was feeling more comfortable with you know, assessing the shoreline u- using satellite images and figuring out what obstacles like power plants or water intakes you know things that I definitely had to go around on my hike um, and also just to kind of relax into the hike and figure out that I could I could take things uh, and figure things out as I was hiking I didn't have to do so much research up front um, and I could just really kind of relax and enjoy the hike well, I am a scientist. I worked in cancer research for years and I have a master of science from Wayne State University in the biological sciences. So, um, and I, I was glad that I had that background because I was able to read a lot of scientific papers about the Great Lakes and then actually contact some scientists and say, you know, talk to me about your research. Talk to me about what's going on with the fish population here or, I and on, on my island adventure, I actually, spent some time on a research vessel on Lake Michigan they were doing bottom trawls they do that every year they bring up samples from the bottom of the lake and they study them and give them to scientists mostly in in, in Ann Arbor um, so uh, yeah I do have a science background I love science and I like to make that very accessible in my books uh, so I, I hope that my readers uh, are able to appreciate the science of the lakes.
0: It's a living organism, and I'm just new to this area of uh, living along Lake Michigan. I've only lived here now for about four months. But in this four months, the lake has just captivated me day in and day out. So at this point, you're looking forward. To what is the very next part of your, your project?
1: I did take time to put all of my books on audiobooks. So that was a, a huge project. So they're available uh, on audible.com. And, and that, was, that was a wonderful way to re-hike these three adventures. So that was, that was a, a lot of fun. Um, I do feel the call of another long hike, but I'm not exactly sure where and when. Uh, but each year I do return to Isle Royal and volunteer uh, to gather moose bones on that island for a scientific study. There's a, a wildlife study based there studying the interaction of wolves and moose. Uh, so every, every May I return there. And next year I might even go twice uh, and hike two weeks on the island because it's just a very special and unique place within the Great Lakes Basin.
0: How many of the islands did you in fact walk?
1: I set foot on over 30 islands for my Great Lakes Island book. Uh, but I did do a lot of kayaking, and as I hiked, I could look out and see, you know, hundreds of islands at a time, uh, especially in Lake, in Lake Huron. So I, I saw thousands of islands during, and especially in Lake, in Lake Huron. So I, I saw thousands of islands during that adventure, but set foot on 30 of them.
0: The issue of industrial locations... On the lakes is a big issue. Uh, the industrial locations that you pass through are they are they all abandoned, or are there some that are still operational?
1: Yeah, uh, there's a mixture of of old and you know defunct and and very vibrant and still working um, industry all through well in pockets throughout the basin. Certainly the. Uh, Detroit River corridor, the southern part of that is still incredibly industrialized, and uh, the sou- southern end of Lake Michigan. There's there are steel mills. There's a container port. Um, uh, there's just a, a, and and power plants and defunct power plants on the south side of Chicago. So, yeah, there's a there's a mixture all over the Great Lakes. But uh, just last month, there was a, a spill. Of arsenic and other heavy metals from uh, a steel mill south of of Chicago uh, into Lake Michigan so you know we always like to think oh we're beyond that you know there are regulations but there there are still there are still these spills there's still a a environmental toll taken on the Great Lakes from the industry along the edge Uh, and it was it was really revelatory to hike through that industrial corridor especially on Lake Michigan uh, because it's not a place you walk through it's it's not a place you wander through you know you drive around it or or you know people when I drive into Chicago you swing west of it you don't want to go through it so it was it was really a revelation to walk directly through it there's a there's a huge oil refinery there too BP has an oil refinery in Whiting Indiana Um, and yeah that actually along that southern corridor that was one place where I did not take water from the lake and filter it to drink because at times I saw a sheen on the water and it just I just didn't feel it was safe even though I had a a water filter with me I didn't I didn't want to expose myself to that
0: and aside from the industrial threats, the threat on the uh, the mussel and the Asian carpet knocking on the door of Lake Michigan.
1: Yeah, invasive species are now and going forward a huge threat to the Great Lakes. They can throw the balance of the Great Lakes uh, in any environment where you take a, a species from the other side of the world and you throw it into that that ecosystem it it throws everything out of balance and it takes quite a while for that to restore Uh, most of the zebra mussels have kind of gone away from the Great Lakes but that's only because we put the quagga mussel into the Great Lakes that was also transported from the other side of the world and the quagga mussel can uh, can live at deeper depths than the zebra mussels so there are many more quagga mussels right now in the Great Lakes than the zebra mussels they have pretty much the same threat as the zebra mussels. Uh, they clear out the the zooplankton um, so the fish don't have as much to drink, uh, as much to eat, the The small fish, and they clear the water. You know, people think, wow, look at the Great Lakes. They're very clear. They're crystal clear, but <laughs> that's because all the nutrients are gone. So small fish have a hard time uh, living and, and prospering. That's a weird... Weird adjective for fish, but <laughs> uh, it, it's it's just a tougher environment for them because of the quagga mussel
0: and the Asian carp.
1: Yeah, the the Asian carp are voracious eaters, so um, if they get into, they would especially threaten something a, a body of water like like Lake Erie uh, because there are a lot of nutrients there. They wouldn't do very well reaching into Lake Michigan, because it is so clear and there isn't that much, but they might get into the river systems and just decimate the river systems. Uh, They, they displace native fish because they, they just out eat native fish. Uh, Yeah. So it's unfortunate that when they were introduced into the lower Mississippi, that they weren't taken care of at that point. They could have just done a fish kill and, and wiped them out, but instead they allowed them to spread throughout the Mississippi watershed, you know, the entire Mississippi River, and now approaching Lake Michigan. Yeah, and south of Chicago on the Calumet River, they actually have electronic fences in the water to repel the Asian carp and to keep them in the river and and to keep them out of Lake Michigan.
0: A lot of challenge. Are you on any of the regional or national councils evaluating policies on the Great Lakes?
1: Yes, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which funnels money into the Great Lakes uh, to complete projects, not to do research or to study things, but to to clean up brownfield areas, to restore wetlands. That program, Uh, miraculously has been continued to be funded through the current administration, and has done a lot of measurable work to improve the health of the Great Lakes in the past decade.
0: Are you involved in any uh, presentations at colleges and universities?
1: I have done presentations and travel widely, giving presentations all over the region about the Great Lakes.
0: The information you have to share is uh, extremely timely and important. I'm looking forward to promoting your good work in my podcasts, and I'm hoping that we can um, have another interview sometime in the future to touch base on some of these things and new developments also.
1: That would be lovely. Yeah, the, the Great Lakes are constantly changing, um, so there, there's always new information.
0: Thank you, Lorreen Neuenhaus. This conversation has been very rewarding and very very interesting i believe that my perception of lake michigan has been changed and enriched
1: again thank you